Lord, we come to you again as people who are, are not perfect in your sight. In fact, we've been considerably unperfect. We've been sinners. We've done things against your majesty and your holiness. So, Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. We, we begin our prayer that way, not just end our prayer that way. We come to you through Christ. And we pray uh, that you would um, be with us in this time. Lord, we think particularly of people who might struggle with seasons of sadness for no particular reason. Lord, we pray for those among us, that you would give them joy in you. And you would give them a vision that, that though they are down, though their souls are struggling, they will yet again praise you. Give them that faith that they will come through, maybe in this life and maybe in the life to come. Give them hope that there will be joy again. Lord, we pray for those who have difficult situations in their home life. We pray for wisdom. And as the song we sang earlier talked about the wisdom being a comfort and your, your wisdom being what we need, we pray that you would give them much wisdom. Help them to know when they should stand firm and insist on truth. Help them know when they should forgive and move on. Help them know where they need to not compromise and where they need to... Um, they need to not do what was best for them, but do what is best for somebody else. We, we pray you give them wisdom in all those difficult, tricky situations in life. Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us to be attentive to your word as we receive it. We pray it would be that word implanted in our souls that does a, a marvelous work of your grace. We pray we would be people changed by your word. Give us uh, eyes of faith to see wonderful things in your word, ears to hear and be obedient and have obedient hearts that our hands and feet and lips might live accordingly to what your word says. Lord, we do thank you that we're not the only church in the area that believes your gospel. We thank you for Solid Rock, Sovereign Grace Church right down the road. We pray that you would be using them and blessing their ministry uh, to University of Maryland students and to the community, to school children. We thank you for the many ways that they are laboring to get your gospel out. We pray that you would bring fruit from that. Lord, help us as well. We thank you for the Christianity End uh, lecture series. We pray that you would continue to use that in the lives of the, the people who were there this past Wednesday. We pray that if people did not know your son as Savior, that something about the way art connects to the gospel would be, uh, would be convicting of them that they would see redemption in Christ as the most beautiful thing in the world and would come to Christ uh, sweetly, enjoying his goodness and glory. We pray for this coming one, for Arcinda's talk on Christianity and the art of storytelling. We pray that you would give her wisdom and give her freedom in her speech, and it would be uh, encouraging, helpful. We pray you would draw people from the community who aren't part of a church in particular, we pray they would come and hear about your gospel there. And give us wisdom as we try to develop that ministry even more. We pray that we would have good speakers and good topics. Help us to think of things that would be interesting for the community and would connect with your gospel. And Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, again, give us the gift of illumination. Help us to see wonderful things in your word and to repent and to have faith and to obey you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Some of the movies that I personally find the most fun to watch are those that are interesting character studies. They have characters in them who 
who kind of beat to a different drummer. Maybe that's because I feel like I beat to a different drummer sometimes. But anyway, don't we all to some degree? But anyway, I like movies like that. And I love it when the writer and the director can, in the beginning of the movie, make it look like this person is different because they're completely out of touch with reality. And then as you get toward the end, you realize that, wait a minute, this person beats to a different drummer because they see something true about reality that others miss. And that's part of the reason why they're different. So Forrest Gump, for all his struggles, sees something that the other characters in the movie miss. He ends up being the only sane one of the bunch because he understands something of reality. Well, today we're going to look at a person who is certainly considered odd. And and Howard, right before the message, uh, or right before Sunday school, was telling me his description of of Paul. And that was someone who was definitely not going to appear in the the normal range in any psychiatric evaluation. Uh, Paul is definitely eccentric. He is is a little odd. He marches to a different drummer. But what we're going to see here, that's not at all because he's lost his grip on reality. It's because he sees something about true reality that most of the rest of us miss. And I pray that that will be encouraging for us to see it as well, and that we would be able to live in light of that reality. So we're going to look at this passage that really reveals Paul's inner psychology probably more than any other uh, passage in the Bible. And uh, we're going to look at it in three different ways. Here's the outline. First, we're going to see two things that make Paul stand out as odd. Two evidences that he marches to a different drummer, that he's not going to be considered normal on a psychiatric evaluation. So then second, we're going to see why he is like that. What is the root issue that makes him different? And then finally, what does that kind of life look like? What does it look like for you for, uh, and me to live that kind of life? What does it look like for us to live that kind of life together? So two things that make Paul stand out as odd, why he is like that, and then finally, what does that kind of life look like for us? Number one, two things that make Paul stand out as odd. And this is from the, the passage that Will read earlier. It's on page 981, I believe, or 980 in your pew Bibles if you want to turn there. Please follow along, though. I think you will find that helpful. Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. Here's what Paul says. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Particularly pay attention to that last part. This will turn out for my deliverance. Now, if we read this verse quickly and kind of don't really pay attention to where it falls in the overall flow of his argument, we might think that deliverance is Paul just being released from prison. Paul, if you've been following along, been here the last few weeks, you know Paul is in prison. He is awaiting a possible death sentence. And it would be quite natural if we understood deliverance as being released from prison. I mean, after all, imagine you're in prison and possibly awaiting execution. What would deliverance look like? (laughs) It looked like you're getting out of prison, right? That's how we would naturally understand this passage. But yet, that is not what Paul means. Um, How do I know that? Well, look at verse 20. Verse 20 explains what Paul means by that deliverance in verse 19. Here's what Paul says, what it means to be delivered. As it is my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now and always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That, for Paul, is deliverance. Christ being honored in Paul's body, whether by life or by death. Now, 
to think about how that's odd, compare that with how we would think of being delivered. So um, imagine, uh, you know, what, what are there some trials in your life right now? Maybe, maybe you feel financial pressure. Maybe you feel difficulties at work. Maybe you feel like uh, something in your life is causing a lot of pain. Maybe it's physical pain. Well, well, what is naturally, how do we think of deliverance? Well, we think of making those circumstances, making those painful circumstances go away, right? And, of course, that is desirable. Nobody's saying that we want to be in a situation that is painful. It makes sense to want the pain to go away. But yet for Paul, that ultimate deliverance that he seeks, though, is not the alleviation of the difficult circumstances. It is rather Christ honored in his, life, in his body, whether by life or by death. That, for Paul, is deliverance. It's not that he doesn't want to get out of prison. He longs to be with the people. He longs to see his friends. But his desire, what he thinks of as what must happen for him to be okay, is Christ being honored. How do you think Paul feels about the prosperity gospel preachers? Those who go along teaching people that You know, Christ died for you not only to have your sins forgiven, but also so that you would be healthy and, you know, get great wealth and have affluence in your life. And one one person said, quote, if you only trust God and give your money, he will give you all the riches that you could imagine. He will bless you. Or another person said, if you continue in the faith, you will get paid. I'm living proof. And... What she means there is that her ministry brings in $95 million a year. She's promising blessings, earthly blessings, physical blessings, money, health for people who continue in the faith. Or another person said this, God calls into existence what is not in existence. So pick a blessing that you want, name it, claim it as yours, and it will be by faith. Now, I think that flies completely in the face of what Paul is talking about as deliverance. And as a pastor, I have an obligation to warn you, don't believe that. Don't believe the person who's going to preach that God's salvation for you necessarily includes a a physical, health, financial type of blessing. That's not in the Bible. Paul is seeing that his deliverance is not that he's going to get well, that he's going to be able to prosper. Its deliverance is that Christ will be honored. And I also have an obligation as your pastor to encourage you, understand that for your own life. We, we might justly condemn that prosperity theology, and yet it can creep up in our own hearts. Somebody told me recently, um, and this person, you know, on paper would have had the same theology that I have, uh, by and large, I believe. But he told me how he and his wife um, went through a struggle. They had a, a miscarriage, and they had no categories to process it because they just assumed that, that God would give them the desires of their heart. They prayed in faith, trusting that he would, he would grant life to the child in her womb, and then he did not. And they realized it was as if the God that they thought they believed was taken away, and then they had to figure out, okay, what God is actually there. What kind of God would live painful trials in my life And do this for my good. What kind of God is that? And it brought them to a great place of resting in God's pleasure. So Paul here appears kind of odd because he uh, doesn't think of deliverance as we would think of deliverance. As normal humans would think of deliverance, escaping our our painful circumstances. He thinks of deliverance as the honor of Christ in him through life or through death. 
And uh, the second part of that first area where he's odd is, is something else. Actually, this is the second thing that makes Paul odd. Look at the middle of verse 20. We read it before, but let me go back and focus on that. I will not be at all ashamed. That's what Paul says there. I will not be at all ashamed. That's unqualified, isn't it? He doesn't say, I won't be ashamed today, or I won't be ashamed in this area of my life. No, it's not at all. Another version that I'm more familiar with because I memorized says, I will not be put to shame in anything. That's all-inclusive, isn't it? Every day, every area of his life. Nothing is going to be able to put Paul to shame. Now, that might be out of step with how most people think of life. Shame seems to be something that we're all familiar with to varying degrees. Do you feel shame? Maybe you're with a group of friends and you find yourself on the, the bad end of their joke and they're all laughing and you're not laughing. Or maybe you fail at something that is really, really important to you. Something you wanted to succeed in. Something you staked your identity on and, and you feel worthless and what will people think of me it comes to your mind. Or maybe somebody hurts you and takes something from you that was very valuable to you and you feel dirty and stained. That kind of thing happens all the time. Ed Welch, a guy who wrote a great book on shame, I think we have it over there on our bookshelf uh, for sale, called Shame Interrupted. He says that uh, he was teaching a class of seminary students, and he, he wanted to make the point that some people feel really bad shame. So he asked the, the students to raise their hand if they ever felt dehabilitating shame. And he thought that maybe five or ten students, brave students, would raise their hands. But instead, instantly, without thinking, almost the entire class raised their hands. Shame is universal. But Paul here says, I will not be put to shame in anything. That doesn't seem normal. That seems like a sociopath. It's more interesting if we understand what Paul means by shame, the background for this. Paul gets his understanding of shame from, yes, his own experience, just like you and I do. But he also gets it from the Old Testament. This word appears all over the place in the Greek Old Testament. And it appears in verses like the one I read earlier, Psalm 23 and Psalm 67, let the one who trusts in you not be put to shame. Over and over again, people in the Psalms pray to God, they, they plead with God that they would not be put to shame uh, by their enemies, that their enemies would not stand over them in triumph. But in fact, the believers pray that they would stand over their enemies in triumph, that God would put their enemies to shame. But Paul says... He's not going to be put to shame. And yet he doesn't appear at all that he's going to have victory over his enemies. I mean, if you were to talk to Paul, you might kind of press him on this. You would say something like, Paul, you're in a filthy prison. The guards beat you. And you say that you won't be put to shame. Or you'll say, Paul, you're going to be, maybe, and eventually would be, publicly executed. You'll be taken out for a crowd of people. A grumpy guy with a big axe is going to chop off his head and people are going to cheer. You're not going to be put to shame? Paul, people are going around and they're trying to hurt you by taking away your ministry. And they're successful at it. They're turning your friends against you. And you're not going to be put to shame? Now, if you kept asking Paul those questions, you might think of that place in the the Princess Bride, that movie, where the guy keeps saying impossible and the things keep happening. And then the other person says, you keep saying that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. Does Paul have a different definition of shame here? Well, hold that thought. There's another way that Paul 
thinking of shame seems odd here. How do we try to avoid shame? We don't want to be put to shame. How do we try to get out of shame? Well, we try to get out by being honored, right? We try to be successful. We try to be good at what we do. We try to look good. We try to have the figure that other people might either be jealous of or attracted to. We try to act respectably so that others will respect us. We want honor for ourselves. That's how we try to escape shame. But Paul marches to a much different drummer here because look what he says in verse 20. Pay attention to how Paul contrasts honor and shame here. So follow along and look at the way Paul uses the words honor and shame. He says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. So he's not going to be at all ashamed. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. What do you see there? Paul is, um, why does that seem odd? Why is that not a normal way of thinking? It's because the way Paul avoids being shamed is by Christ being honored. Notice that. That's not how we normally think. You know, I might think, well, you know, if Mike is not going to be put to shame, that means Mike will be honored, and, and I will seek my own honor, and the honor of Christ will have absolutely nothing to do with it, but not so for Paul. The way Paul avoids being shamed is Christ being honored. Amen, yeah. But, but how does that work? Because on the surface, at least, they don't seem mutually exclusive. I mean, couldn't we think of a situation where Paul is ashamed and Christ is honored? I mean, couldn't that happen in theory? And I think about that in my own life. I was in high school, uh, and I remember a time in high school where I really did not want other people to know that I was a Christian, that I went to church, that I associated with, with church people, because I had that typical, you know, fear of man and wanting to, to be cool. And um, not that I really was, but at least I wanted to try that way. And I didn't want anybody to know that I was a Christian. And yet, on the other hand, I felt turmoil about that because I felt like I should. So one day I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write something, a Christian saying on my binder. And I did, but here's the thing. I wrote it really small so that nobody would actually be able to read it. But then one day in science class, my binder was close enough to somebody else, and he read it. And then in front of a whole lot of people, they, they like turned to me, and I gave the best explanation of the gospel that I could. And yet I was deeply ashamed. And Christ was honored because I I spoke words that were true about him, yet I felt a deep sense of shame. But Paul says that's not going to happen to him. That situation can't occur to Paul. Why? Well, let's go to the next part. Why is Paul able to say that? Look at verse 21. Here's the answer for Paul's odd view of life. Verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is is gain. That's why Paul had that perspective on life. That's why Paul thought of his deliverance not as being physically released from his difficult circumstances, and that's why Paul said that if Christ is honored, he will not at all be ashamed. The four here is a conjunction, explains the reason for something. So if I say, I'm hungry, or I'm going to go to the store, for I am hungry, the the for I am hungry explains why I'm going to the store, right? This verse starts off, for to me to live is Christ and die is gain. It, it explains what Paul has just said. It explains why deliverance is not being set free from the difficult circumstances, but honoring Christ. It explains why he's not going to be ashamed. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Okay, but what does that mean? 
What does it mean to live as Christ? When we say to live is, we mean this is what my life is all about. This is what I live for. This is what motivates me. This is what gets me out of bed when I really don't want to. This is what I must have or I'm ruined. For Paul, that was Christ. To live is Christ. What do a lot of people live for? Maybe to live is fame. To live is being respected. To live is financial security. To live is being accepted, being loved. To live is my appearance. To live is my possessions. Now, these things aren't really wrong or sinful in and of themselves. They're just not what we are supposed to live for. Even if we put to live as my family, to live as my spouse, that's not what Paul says we ought to ultimately live for. And you see, this connects with why Paul knows he will not be ashamed. Shame happens to us when the thing that we're living for gets squashed. So if for me to live is financial security, having nice things, then I'm ashamed when... I need to go on food stamps, or I, need, I have to lower my standard of living, or I need to ask for help. That's ultimate shame. If to be, live is to be respected, then to not be respected is your shame, is your loss. I heard of a woman who came for counseling. She was depressed, and she was having marriage problems. And it turned out that the thing that she would not give up was love from her husband. She wanted love from her husband. Now, that's not bad to want, right? Who wouldn't want that? The problem was her husband was a cold man and didn't love much of anything. And he wasn't going to love her. And yet that's what she wanted more than anything else. And she couldn't not be depressed then because the thing that would give her life was always out of her reach. But see, Paul was confident that he would not be put to shame because the thing what he wanted was in reach. It was Christ, and Christ had come to them. And Christ's honor is what he treasured above all else. I was talking, to this pa- talking about this passage with my friend Steve, who did the Christianity and the Arts talk. And one of the things he said about this passage is, isn't it interesting how, for Paul, his idea of union with Christ really just changed his outlook on everything? That's what makes him kind of odd. And I think that's what's true here. Paul, Paul to, to live as Christ is because Paul has a connection with Christ. Paul has a relationship with Christ, a union with Christ. So, for instance, Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The relationship that a believer has with Christ is not the relationship that one might have with a historical figure or a theorem or an idea. It's not to be united to a theology. It's to be united to a person. That person is Christ. So Paul can say, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And Paul can also say, when Christ is revealed in glory, then you will be revealed in glory. Paul's very identity has become embedded with the glory and honor of Christ, so that if Christ is honored, Paul is not put to shame. In other words, Paul lives off of the honor and glory of Christ. Do you? And see, Paul knew that it was quite possible, indeed probable, that his enemies were going to have victory over him. And they did. Paul was released from prison, but then a few years later he was captured again. And this time his release would not be by walking out of the prison doors. He was beheaded. The guy with the axe chopped off his head. But Paul did not see that as his shame. 
He saw that Christ was honored in that, in him laying down his life for the sake of Christ. That brought Christ honor, and Paul lived off of that honor. So he did not get put to shame. And friends, finish the sentence and be honest with yourself. For me to live is... What do you live for? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What motivates you to keep going even when it's hard? What is that one thing that you must have or you'll be put to shame? If that's not Christ, you'll find yourself in situation after situation where you are deeply ashamed. You will live unsure of your own honor. You will live for the approval of others. And you will never really get it. Listen to something that Madonna wrote or said. It's instructive for us. She said this, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage, and I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible feeling of being inadequate, and that's always pushing me and pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and indeed, it probably never will. Brutally honest, profoundly true, I think. Can you relate to that? If you're living for something other than Christ, it will always be just out of reach. And once you feel like you've gotten it, you must get it more, and you must not lose it, and you'll be always worried that you will. Well, friends, why not live for Christ? Why not live for the one who died for you? Why not live for the one who is pure glory and honor and has shared that honor and glory with you? Let me just share with you the honor of Christ. Here's the gospel, and I pray that as you hear it, you'll see that it is beautiful. Christ came to share his glory with sinners. He's not ashamed to call them brothers or sisters. And that's incredible because we are most undeserving. We have not honored Christ as we should. He made us for himself. We are made for God, for his glory, and yet we have served other things. We have sought the honor and glory of other things, of ourselves and not God. And that means that we are justly deserving his wrath. We deserve his punishment. And yet he sent his perfect son, his innocent son, to be slaughtered on the cross in our place. To to die, to take the punishment for all those who will look to him in faith. The Bible says he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He received our shame so that we could be clothed in glory. He hung on the cross naked and alone, abandoned by his Father, so that we might be found in Christ, clothed in white and welcomed by God forever. Friends, that is the glory of Christ. That is the uniqueness and beauty of Christ. Why not live for him? Now, after Paul says to live is Christ, he then says... To die is gain. Why is dying gain? Look at verse 23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Notice the connection. Dying is gain because dying is to be with Christ, and that is better. And death, although painful and bitter in a sense, is sweet because it is that which brings him to his greatest treasure. And do you see the logical connection between 
living is Christ and dying is gain? You see, the only way that we can say to die is gain is if to live is Christ. Otherwise, death will not be gain. If to live is financial security, death is financial loss. Because as they say, no hearse is ever dragging a U-Haul, right? You can't take it with you. If to live is good looks, death will have an effect on that. If to live is for marriage for your spouse, well, death will be lost because there will not be marriage in heaven. You might see your spouse and know your spouse, but not in the same way. If to live is good health, death is the ultimate bummer because death is total loss. But if to live is Christ, then to die is gain because gain, death is how we get Christ. So see, for the Christian, death will bring you more joy than your greatest friend or your greatest material possession. Death will give you your greatest desire. So friends, what could be more valuable than Christ? And why not consider death gain? Now, Paul's not the only one who says that. I think of Betty May, who uh, many of you know, and we all should be praying for her. And when I see her in the hospital and she has a spell where it looks like she might die, she talks about how I want to be with Christ. That dying is gain. Friends, there is nothing more contradictory than a Christian who fears death. It's contradictory for a Christian who doesn't live his life unto the glory of God, but it's perhaps more of a contradiction when a Christian fears death. For in death, there lies the Christian's greatest joy to be with Christ. See, and here's where the Christian and the non-Christian differ. The non-Christian is going to be somewhat happy in this life, less happy in death, and most exceedingly miserable after death. But the Christian will be somewhat happy in this life, more happy in death, and exceedingly happy after death. And Christians and non-Christians might not differ too much in their level of happiness in this life, but the more they move toward death, the more they will depart, because the Christian sees that as that which brings him or her their greatest joy. And the non-Christian sees that as that which brings the greatest loss. For the Christian, the best life is not now. The best life is to come. And that is what we look for and hope for. Now, a question Will our longing for Christ ever be perfect in this life? Will we ever truly be able to say to live as Christ and to die as gain without some part of our heart pulling in another way? No. While we live in this life, other things will always rival our uh, place of God, number one in our hearts. A friend of mine wrote a book that talks about this. And the title of the book is, Lord, You Are the Treasure That I Seek. And the subtitle is, But You Know There Are a Lot of Other Cool Things Out There. Yes, our desire for Christ will not always be as singular as Paul's is here. And therefore, we shouldn't be surprised if at times death doesn't feel like total gain. We shouldn't feel that we're utterly defeated. But if a person has no longing to be with Christ, is there any evidence that that person is a Christian? The answer is no. Because the Bible never suggests that anybody is going to get to heaven who doesn't want to be there. The author of Hebrews tells us that Christ will return for those who love his appearing. It is the mark of a Christian to, at least in some degree, long after Christ. The Christian is one who finds Christ as his greatest treasure and longs to be with him. Friends, if you have no longing after Christ, then I f- and if death doesn't feel at the least bit gain, then you must 
deal with the fact that death could be far more lost than you realize. It's not just that you'll get Christ or you're not terribly interested in, but you may find yourself separated from Christ in a place of other darkness and pain and torment. So friends, I urge you, don't let that happen. Understand how hopeless your situation is apart from Christ. Understand his glory and his free invitation to come and come to him and trusting in him, putting your hope in him, asking him to give you the joy uh, of being with him. Ask him that that would be your desire. Now, finally and briefly, what does this kind of life look like? What is a life where to live is Christ and to die is gain? What does that actually look at? Well, some throughout history have thought that it looks like withdrawing into your prayer closet, but you know, going into a monastery somewhere, spending your time with just Jesus and me, right? But that's not what it looks like for Paul. For Paul, it, moves, it means moving toward others to help them share Paul's same passion. That's what it means. Look at verse 23. I am hard-pressed between the two, the two being to live or to die. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But notice what he says. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you in the progress and joy of the faith. What does Paul want to do? Well, he's divided. On the one hand, he wants to be with Christ, but yet if he's pressed and he has to choose, he will choose to be with them to help them grow in their faith. Because Paul can say to live as Christ and to die as gain, he considers his life purpose to make Christ known and to do the hard work of helping other people grow in the faith that they can say to live as Christ and to die as gain. A couple of assumptions here are worth noting. One, assumption number one, people do not arrive in a state of perfection immediately after they become Christians. And notice Paul talks about progress. That means that once we become Christians, there's areas where we need to grow, grow in the faith and grow in that joy. That means we need to trust God for more and more aspects of our life and to see him bigger and bigger. I put the quote in the bulletin every week that talk about that progress by Martin Luther. This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness, not health, but healing. All does not gleam in glory, but all is being purified. Paul assumes this life is progress. We're not there yet. We're on the road. We're going there. And Paul assumes, assumption number two, that it takes other people committed to walking with them to help them get there. Paul assumes that that progress and joy in the faith is a community project that involves other people helping them grow. I think about my own life. I think of areas where there was significant growth, where I realized things. And I could put names of people in those moments. Other people were always helping me see those things. That's why God puts us in families and communities, and most importantly, in churches, so that we can help one another grow. So for Paul, the only reason that he's not in heaven being with Christ is that he can be on earth helping other people want to be with Christ. Friends, is that why you are here? Is that your life mission? Now, you could say, okay, but Paul is an apostle. Okay, I agree. His calling was somewhat different. But notice, his desire to be with them and help them grow flows out not of his apostolic calling merely. It flows out of his to live as Christ, to die as gain. So, friends, if that is true of you, and I hope it is, then why not make your calling 
the reason you are here, to help other people grow. What does that mean? What does it look like more particularly? Well, it looks like being intentional in relationships with others. Forming relationships where you are helping others grow in the progress and joy of the faith. means praying for others. It means recognizing that being a church member doesn't mean being part of a club. It means being committed to a people. And as a member of the church, you're committed to helping one another grow. How do you see God working in somebody else's life? Tell them. Encourage them along that way. We can often see the the good works of God in uh, another person better than that person can see in themselves. So we need one another to encourage us. How do you see other areas where people can grow? Well, form a relationship with that person so that you can lovingly communicate that. How can you help others grow? Well, move toward them for that purpose. Friends, what better thing could you do than to spend your life helping others grow in the joy and progress of their faith? What what better mission could there be? Let me close with a story that a friend of mine told me that has had considerable impact on me as I've considered my directions in life. Uh, This story was by a pastor uh, talking to a young man named Michael. And no, I'm not the pastor nor Michael here. But Michael was a young man working at a French fry stand in a mall in Massachusetts. But Michael dreamed of bigger things. What are you doing with your life? The pastor asked him. Well, I'm going to college. Oh, what are you doing in college? I'm studying to be a lawyer. And then what are you going to do? I'm going to start my own law practice and distinguish myself as the best lawyer I can, said Michael. And then what? asked the pastor. I will build my law firm, hire more people, defend important cases, and get rich. And then what? Well, and then I will retire early, travel, and enjoy myself. And then what? Well, I guess I'll get old. And then what? I will die. And then what? And Michael had nothing to say. That last, and then what, echoed in the hollow cavity of his soul that had just a minute ago been filled with joy. And it was clear to him that Nothing he lived for would have any value in that moment. And he felt as if he was peering into an eternity of endless darkness alone. So, friends, one day you will die. And then what? Well, I plead with you. Find Christ. Know him. Live for him. He is a beautiful savior, worthy of all your affection and devotion. Make your life about knowing him and making him known, and then die, seeing it as pure gain. Let's pray. Father, we are struck by the awesome weight of this passage, the value of Christ, and the radical difference it makes in how we live and how we die, and what are our priorities and how we spend our time and how we view ourselves and others. Father, we pray that at least a part of this great truth would have bearing on our hearts. And we pray that you would use it to mold us into the kind of people who together make it our goal to make you known and to help others in the joy and progress of their faith. We pray you'd apply these truths to our hearts and would translate into 
Others knowing more about you. Others growing in their faith. Non-Christians finding out about the gospel that they might know you too. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name.